It's a five-star podcast. Because we do it. What's real? What's up, everybody? Welcome back to the What's Real podcast, episode 152. I am your host, Ed Demko, along with my cohort, co-conspirator, co-contributor, and my co-tag team championship partner in podcasting, the J himself, Jared Majoris. What's going on, the J? Happy V-Day, hey, Eon. Happy Vagina Day. Or, I'm sorry, it's Valentine's Day. Happy Valentine's Day. Happy VD. <laughs> I mean, wait a minute. Never mind. Yeah, yeah. anyway. I'll be, your, uh, I'll be your Cupid for the next couple hours, and then we'll switch off to <laughs> our significant <laughs> others. Yeah, th- thank Christ this is airing after Valentine's Day. You guys are in luck. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Because, of course, we have a great show lined up for you this week. We're talking the NFL. We're going to talk about the Super Bowl, of course, that just happened this past weekend. The Month of the Samurai rolls on again as we have another double feature with Baby Cart in Peril from 1972 and Baby Cart in the Land of Demons from 1973. And if you guys are a fan of movies, this is the week for you, or maybe not the week for you, come to think of it. But uh, another double feature uh, from our friends Joe, Bob, and Darcy down at The Last Drive-In. Just had a Valentine's Day special this past weekend on Shudder. And we have a double dose there of Fan of the Mall from 1989 and 1988's Necromantic. So it's going to be a show for the whole family. And of course, we're going to be talking some goofs and much, much more. Uh, first and foremost, something I wanted to mention here on the show, uh, rest in peace uh, to Dave from De La Soul. Uh, me personally, uh, De La Soul is literally like my favorite like rap group of all time. And uh, he was only 54 years old, so that's pretty terrible. And uh, of course, the uh, the timing is, is even worse too, because uh, about a year ago, we talked about this on the show many a times, but uh, De La Soul was in the process of trying to get their catalog for years uh, to no avail. And because of that, uh, their music was held up in rights purgatory. They weren't on streaming, uh, which sucks because their legacy was kind of taking a hit because of that. Because, you know, younger people can't really find their music uh, in the typical manner. Um, but they made a deal. They got the the rights back to all their masters and all their albums. Uh, and then recently it was announced that March 3rd was going to be the day that everything hits streaming. So this is going to be a big year for De La Soul. But uh, after the passing of David Jalakur, uh, better known to music fans as True Goy the Dove or Plug Do, uh, recently passed away uh, this past Super Bowl Sunday at age 54. Uh, it, it, he recently had some health issues uh, and said that he was struggling with congestive heart failure as of 2018. Um, but you know, that's the last I heard of everything. Uh, so it's pretty much a shame and terrible timing. And this, this is one that hit me pretty hard, you know, just speaking for myself, but, um, you know, dude, when I was like anywhere from like eight to like 11, that was like a huge time period for me just with like movies and music alone. That's where like, I found a ton of stuff or. I guess kind of like started developing my taste and shit like that. And that was definitely something during that time period that I remember wholeheartedly was De La Soul and, and their original uh, LP, Three Feet High and Rising. Um, Me, Myself, and I is the main song off of that one. But Buddy, and there's a bunch of great shit. Uh, obviously, they worked with Prince Paul, uh, legendary DJ and a uh, member of Stetsasonic. Um, also, they would eventually stop working with him 
to make the stakes as high album, which was what introduced uh, Jay Dilla to the world, another legendary producer. Um, and the thing is, there's let's see, one, two, three, uh, seven albums of stuff that's going to hit streaming on March third. And in my opinion, like five of them are classics. Yeah. So. It's a big deal, um, it, as is his passing, especially at 54 years old. So rest in peace to Dave, plug to uh, one of my favorites of all time. I absolutely love De La Soul. So, uh, you know, his legacy will continue to live on, thankfully. And all I can say is hopefully his family reaps the benefits financially from, from what's going on. For sure. Yeah. Hopefully something good or positive comes, comes from it. And, and like you said, that's the craziest part about this. And we, we say that a lot on the show, Hey, life is timing, you know, and it's, it's weird how some of that can, can work out that he passes away a few weeks before after all this fighting for their rights and everything, uh, finally is going to have De La Soul come back to the streaming services. And we're going to be rocking that, uh, definitely bumping it. Cause yeah, I'm a big fan too. It's a, definitely a sad day for all of us here at the what's real podcast. Cause of course you, you and our boys, they got me into hip hop as we were growing up and, you know, De La Soul was definitely part of that. And, uh, you know, I'm definitely looking forward to them finally being able to be streamed and stuff. Cause it's been like forever since I've listened to them, you know? So yeah, that's one it's thing I'm looking forward to. They, and they, they even kind of went on this campaign for a while whenever they were dealing with Tommy Boyd records, uh, who were obviously the people that were being the difficult party with the rights and everything where they were like, they were even saying like, Hey, if you're fans of ours, like don't even play the videos on YouTube because they're making money from that shit. And we're not. And ever since they said that, I kind of did that. So, like, I've been, like, dying to listen yeah, to some of this shit. Yeah, that's a good point, too. Uh, I might even have Cam throw something towards the end of the show, uh, you know. To, for, yeah, we should. You know, just, just to celebrate it, too. So, uh, check for that, too, if you guys are big De La Soul fans. But, you know, man, it's uh, it's bittersweet. It's that kind of a thing, of course. Um, I just still hope, too, that they, they get to have, like, a really good year. Uh, you know, like where everybody's kind of showing them some appreciation and shit and they feel it from everybody out there. That would be really cool. So uh, who knows what could come from it? I know they were also working on another album and hopefully they can still come out with that stuff as well, too, because I obviously can never really get enough of, of Daylight. Like all even the albums, there's like two albums that you can get on streaming of theirs, which was after the Tommy Boy stuff. And like, I really like those two albums a lot, too. So can't really go wrong with Daylight. Yeah, it's great shit. I'm going to shout out a dude that's like my cousin, uh, Vito Gerasoli, who is the proprietor of Natrona Bottling, which has sponsored the show before. And he he put up uh, Dave Plug 2, uh, We Are De La Soul, which I consider the best hip-hop group of all time, passed away, having just won their year-long fight with Tommy Boy Records, you know, everything you're covering, hey, Ed, past, president, and still the future. And Vito says, I will definitely be streaming on March 3rd in support, but until then, I'll just be listening to them on CD, especially on Saturdays. Stay chill, yo, and rest easy. Uh, but that was cool. Just wanted to read that off from from Vito. Uh, but you know that went right in with you, hey Ed. That's kind of why I wanted to shout that out because he he said as well. I consider the best hip hop group of all time. You know, so yeah, absolutely. And that's and two. It takes a little bit further for me because like they have some stuff that like I can legitimately say got me through some really shitty days too. Like it it kind of gets to that point with some of this oh, stuff. Yeah. So, like, I'm always indebted to things like that. So, and, and they would 100% fall in that category. So, uh, rest in peace to True Goy Dave, plug two from De La Soul, one of the greatest to ever do it, and one of my favorites of all time from us here at the What's Real podcast. 
Something else that I wanted to bring up to Jay, because we talk about movies a lot on the show, but uh, a lot of times it's it, it's on the business side of things. And occasionally we'll find something that's kind of interesting, and that's what I found here, so I wanted to bring it to the show. Uh, this is uh, an article that Slash Film had this past week. It's uh, Lionsgate is winning uh, by not playing the streaming game. Uh, and this is a company who at one point uh, purchased the Stars Network, um, which is the only streaming that their products are directly involved in. Uh, and they recently sold that. And they are making, uh, they made $845 million off their TV library in the last 12 months. Um, so like they're, they're not a massive company to the point where they're competing with like Disney and people like that, but they, they've kind of seemingly found this middle ground where they're the only people operating like this. Um, and you know, if you read this whole article, it talks a lot more about the numbers and everything else that go into it. But, um, but the reason why I wanted to bring this up is because they, one of the things that I thought was very interesting in this, it said, Lionsgate suffered some big losses last year with the big budget Moonfall bombing badly, for example. But then we have stuff like Clerks 3, which under the radar performed well for the studio. And more to the point, the only reason the movie got made is because Jay and Silent Bob reboot sold so many Blu-rays, a market much of the industry is ignoring at this point. Plus, Shotgun Wedding was a movie that they, I guess, you know, bankrolled and they sold it to Amazon for a premium. Uh, they're taking smaller bets that are paying off. That in turn adds value to its ever-growing library, which has become increasingly valuable. Um, now, this is something that I've been saying for years, and you know this, Jay, me and you talk about movie-related stuff all the time. Um, but there's people that are, you know, the big budget shit, you know, the, the, the Star Wars movies, the Avatars, the superhero stuff. Uh, and then you have tons of low to no budget stuff. Uh, but there's seemingly this middle ground that no one is really operating in. Kind of like how I say, you don't need to make a movie for $300 million. And, you know, making a movie for nothing is making a movie for nothing. But, like, there's no reason why people can't be out there making movies anywhere from, like, a 5 to $10 million basis that are playing on streaming services, Netflix, Shudder, uh, and, you know, basically the entire lot of them, frankly. Uh, after having theatrical runs or going to certain outlets and things like that and continuing to have a life after the streaming services by going to stars, HBO, sci-fi, you know, things like that. Um, but this is kind of showing the point that like there is a middle ground to be operated on and, and it's just like nobody seems to be focused on it except for maybe Lionsgate. And that is good to see because like we say, even with all our wrestling talk where the WWE was such a basic global monopoly for so long and you don't really have alternatives, you know, now with AEW and, and everything that's been happening with pro wrestling, it's kind of a parallel example that it is good to see that there are people in the game other than just the giants and the Titans, as they were described with Disney and, and the whole corporations. And, and that's what was interesting about this head. And I appreciate you sending me the article. Cause like you said, you, you know me, I'm very interested in stuff like this. And, and as you're mentioning, they basically said that Lionsgate is what is known in the industry as a mini major is how they explained it. Meaning yep. it's not as big as Disney or Warner brothers, but not as small as, as smaller companies, which they mentioned here, uh, neon or STX it's somewhere in the middle. And like you said, it just seems like Lionsgate is, is playing the long game, which, you know, in a day and age of instant gratification, that could be really smart, man. Like, like they say, pa patience is a virtue. 
And that's kind of what they're playing. And, and like you mentioned, as opposed to a $100 billion MCU movie and, and those type of things that are coming from Disney and, and the Titans that we're describing, you have Lionsgate doing, like like you mentioned, like the 5 to $10 million films and just kind of chipping away at stuff. Yeah. I mean, there's... I mean, th there's different levels to everything. You know what I mean? You can't just have, like, I even think that about stuff theatrically. Um, and I think that's a lot of times why theaters don't do well is because they're just focused on the, the major stuff, not realizing there is a movie going audience out there for all kinds of stuff um, of all different types of level. So, I mean, I, I just think it's short-sighted. You know what I mean? Because like there's, you know, like if a company comes along just to focus on this market, like they can do big, big business for themselves because they just don't even have competition. Right. So, you know, and like we've seen this for years too. like Bruce Willis made a career, in, you know, towards the end of his career on just making direct to video stuff. Like a lot of stuff like that exists. And it's like, who is this stuff for? But it shows you that there are middle grounds that people can operate in and people are going to want to still see those movies and there's still going to be a need for them on streaming and on other, you know, different formats. We've, we've talked about this aspect of this article that comes out of this also, Hey Ed, before where it is just so funny with how financial talk can be nowadays with what the glass ceiling is for expect yep. for financial expectations, where as we're talking about, you're saying that Lionsgate's smaller, it's on the middle ground. And meanwhile, as the article states, the company's third quarter of its current fiscal year Revenue hit $1 billion, absolutely yeah. smashing Wall Street expectations. But that's what's funny, you know, and I, I always got to say just from a personal perspective, you know, having a, a bare bones, uh, really small production company, it's just funny to hear that that this is considered the middle ground company that's revenue just hit $1 billion. Yeah, but they didn't hit a billion dollars based off making product. They right, did it, it was catalog. It was their catalog. Yeah, because they, they were going on to say that, Lionsgate's uh, 17,000 title movie and TV library. As you mentioned, it generated $845 million for the company in the past 12 months. And the, the fact that they have this library and can kind of shop it around, it, it's definitely something that other companies are going to be interested in. And the article goes on to mention uh, a company like uh, Apple that that is you know kind of still getting their streaming service up and running in comparison to the giants that are Netflix, Disney Plus, and Prime. So it's kind of saying like you know a big strategy for Apple TV Plus if they could get their hands on uh, Lionsgate could be a huge acquisition. However, it's going to be expensive because MGM sold to Amazon last year for eight point five billion. So, yep. and that was a much smaller library than what Lionsgate has with their 17,000 uh, plus title library. So if, if you know, we always say I'm, I'm in the, the business of comparison. If you're talking about MGM selling Amazon last year for 8.5 billion, what could Lionsgate's catalog be worth? So this, well, this they, is very interesting. Amazon overpaid for it. They did it on Of course, purpose. yeah. Um, you're going to have that. So... I mean, it's just that that's what the problem is with a lot of this stuff, too, because then there's just acquisition companies. You know what I mean? They're just they, they and yeah, that's kind of what Disney's become. You know, they, they well, acquired all that IP. Well, they're an IP company. That's a right. little bit different because like Lionsgate might own the rights to these movies, but they don't own the rights to the characters and everything within. So like they can't just go and do what they yeah, want. Merchandising so. and everything. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. Uh, but the thing is, you know, it, like. 
they're becoming acquisition companies. And I've seen it in the past, like, and it's funny because Lionsgate happened to be one of them. Uh, Monster Squad. It was a movie that nobody could find, you know, uh, wasn't released since VHS. You know, a bunch of fans were pining for it. And, you know, Michael Felcher, uh, who does directing, he does like, uh, you know, special features and stuff. And he helps to release movies on, on home video formats. Uh, but he found out that Lionsgate owned it. And he contacted the people he knew over there and told them about it. And it was like, you go, you guys knew you were on the Monster Squad? And they're like, okay. And he's like, well, yeah, they don't care. like that movie. Yeah, they don't give a fuck. Like, they don't even know where the shit's located in their, you know, warehouses and shit like that. So uh, whenever you deal with acquisition companies like this and things become like that, then things tend to get lost and, you know, it's harder to, for you know, unless they see inherent value to put it out immediately, then it just sits forever and can kind of become lost. Um, you know, it's a shame. And then we've seen stuff too, like fires and things at, at film, uh, you know, storage facilities and shit. And then things become lost forever. And then what do you, you know, that nothing should be lost at this point. So uh, it, it does create further problems with that kind of stuff. But I just thought it was interesting to kind of see this to, you know, because it's it's one of those situations where a company is kind of operating in a space that nobody else really seems to give a shit about. They're making a lot of money doing it. Yeah, having a very successful run with it. I thought another interesting thing that came out of this as well. Hey, Ed, as as you mentioned, you know, we're, we're comparing Lionsgate and everything information wise from this article with Disney and Amazon and, and everything. And, and you, you were just talking about the, the cinematic theater experience. And, and we've talked about that a million times over where it just seems to be like the franchises, the reboots, the sequels, all the, the known IPs, all the Marvel movies and everything that's predominantly in theaters. And, you know, we're comparing this middle ground company that's Lionsgate. And it mentions that the outlook also looks quite good for 2023 for Lionsgate. And meanwhile, and, and this is just funny, and I get it. You want to establish franchises. I mean, that's what everybody goes for now. Like, I know the, the I was just reading the thing about The Rock. He's coming out with this uh, this Christmas kind of thing that he's trying to make into a, a Netflix franchise and, and all that. Like, that's that's the goal because, you know, that's going to be the most money. It's going to keep you busy for years. So all that said, but again, I do think it's funny. We're talking about, like, one of the lesser companies with maybe some original content. And meanwhile, the outlook for 2023 includes John Wick Chapter 4. Four, the expendable for the expendables for saw 10 a new hunger games <laughs> so it's got a, a, a sequel to dirty dancing uh so yeah, yeah they, i just they, they, these studios don't want to sell anything unless it's already it's been already been established that's been sold. and i just took like that out of this i just thought that was funny yeah it's they've been like that for years now and that's part of the reason why you see less and less good movies and more and more just derivative bullshit and nostalgia it, yeah. you know it is what it is so and especially too, like you know, like uh, a friend of mine said on on social media the other day, they were talking about Avatar, and they were like, "What? Why is it that like this movie's making all this money?" And he's like, "I never hear anything about it. I don't know anybody that even seen it." And it's like, "Yeah, it's all fucking." And people are like, "It's global," and it's and I'm like, "Yeah, and so they sell tickets for thirty dollars." So it's like, that's why. Right. It's not a big cultural phenomenon. It's just everything's been worked to death with numbers and everything. Like, I, I was talking to somebody about this recently. It's kind of perfect timing anyway for what we're talking about on the show. But the, the uh, Super Bowl gets the best ratings of anything every single year, right? And it's like, how many people watch the game in the United States? You know what I mean? It would be like, oh, 80 million people watch the game. I'm like, yeah, and there's 440 million in the country. Right. 
So like we go nuts. Like this is the most watched thing all year. And it's like not even half the country watches it. Yeah, there's something so, different for everybody. And, and that's what we sometimes forget too. I mean, not that we do, but it's just like a, an aspect of it that we're such insider big fans and, and involved in different outlets, you know, even ourselves. So we do definitely have a different perspective than somebody that just doesn't even give a shit about, you know, these kind of things, you know, like you're saying. Yep. It's very weird how that works, but it's like everything has its own specific audience and it's not as big as people tend to think right. when it comes to the grand scheme. And, and I like so. I liked how this was wrapped up where it says, you know, for now, um, it's kind of a breakdown of everything we just kind of were saying with Lionsgate's current uh, Lionsgate's current strategy, playing the different game than just about everybody else by leading into the film library we've been talking about, not ignoring what small to mid-budget movies can do in the long run, as I was mentioning, you know, kind of playing the, the, the long game and not getting caught up in the arms race of streaming. And, and they mentioned to, to wrap up the article that for now, at least, it's working. Exactly. So we'll have to see how that pans out and see if more companies kind of get into the fold and, and do the same kind of stuff that they're doing, or at least trying to do that. Um, and of course, too, a lot of people always talk about streaming and like when it's going to kind of peak. And, you know, I don't know if we've seen that yet, but it's, it kind of feels like we've seen the peak of streaming up to this point. Uh, yeah, Netflix, back the they way. lost a heck of a lot of subscribers not too long ago, last few yeah. months. And there's probably going to be more of that kind of stuff, you would imagine. You know, especially to like with the summer months coming, things just even in the short term, like people are watching less and less things on TV because just more things to do. We so. always say as well, everything gets oversaturated. And now MGM, there's MGM Plus, Discovery Plus, you know, yeah. they're just overloading the market with, with different streaming services. And there's only so, so much that people are going to plop down a monthly fee to watch. Yeah. And that's what I mean. Like you're going to start like, when are they going to figure out like where the prices can't be hiked anymore? Because people aren't just aren't willing to pay that for a service. You were just you were just saying that the other day in a private conversation. We were talking about some stuff. And you're like, dude, there's just too much shit. You know, and I, like I said, I'm like, yeah, you're talking about somebody that has very little free time. You know, like I mentioned to you, like my my Monday through Wednesday, pretty much all week, I have like no free time. So it only gives me a couple days to maybe watch some stuff. And there's just an overabundance of, of entertainment content. So you, like I always say, you got to prioritize what you know, you, you want to spend your time on. Yeah. And you know how that stuff goes too, man. Like you might be compelled to keep up with something. Uh, and then you start seeing how everything is and shit. And you're just like, you throw your hands in the air and you're like, you know what? Fuck it. I'm done. I mean, I, I'm just going to cancel it all together. Cause I'm never going to have time for this. I'm not going to make time for it. So it's just done. That's how you quit watching shows. That's how you might quit watching a movie series or something like that. Cause you're like, eh, I've tried to watch the third one four times, kept falling asleep. I'm just fucking done with it. I don't care. Like, it's easy to give up on shit when it's like that because there's really no incentive for you to stay involved in it. Right. Yeah, we just talked about that a few weeks ago. There was that article about the Netflix current structure. And, yeah, the and, loop. The loop and them canceling uh, shows before they even really can can garner an audience. And it's like, yeah, when you find out a, a season one of a, a series is going to be the only one, then you're not going to have any kind of motivation to put the time into watching something like that. Yeah. It just it makes it easier to move on or to do something else, 100%. So, uh, but they're going to have to find the fine line there and then figure it out because it's, it's really going to affect their bottom line as far as what, you know, what they're doing with their businesses and everything. So we'll see how it turns out. And, you know, maybe we'll see some more stuff on this. And, and obviously, as we find out, we'll bring it up here on the show.
But we are up against our very first commercial break. And whenever we come back, me and the Jay are going to be talking all things NFL Super Bowl. We're also going to be talking about the season ending awards and everything as well as well as the Hall of Fame uh, for 2023. So stay tuned for all that and much more right after this right here on the What's Real Podcast. Join us next week for episode 152 of the What's Real Podcast. A big pro wrestling segment is back as we take a look at WWE Elimination Chamber 23 and other wrestling news. Also, we're going to take a look at the brand new 2023 horror film, Skinner And the month of the samurai comes to a close with the final film in the series, 1974's White Heaven in Hell. This is Timothy James with the With Real Podcast, representing Goose Through Goose for 150 seconds. Get out of here, Jared. Stop. And come get he's pushing me. I'm trying to promote Goose Through Goose. Get out of here. Come on. I'm sick of you, Timison. Goose Through Goose is next Jeez. week, too, Head. Got oh, yeah. Get out of here. All that, guys. All that and much more next week on episode 152 of the What's Real Podcast. And we're back, and it is time to talk a little bit about Super Bowl 57. Uh, first up, before we get into the game, the Jay, the commercials. Uh, eh. Like, nothing. Look, the Breaking Bad commercial was kind of cool, but, like, I don't know. I, they didn't really do a whole lot for me this year. Nah. I mean, my favorite thing probably overall was just because I'm a film nerd, was like uh, some of the trailers. Yeah, dude, I, which reminds me, I thought Indiana Jones looked pretty cool. Yeah, Indiana yeah. Jones looks good. Uh, I know you're not big on the, the superhero ones, but just seeing Michael Keaton as Batman again, I, that, I never that, thought that was going to happen. That was cool. And, dude, I got to say this. I went from being like, these are fucking stupid to, okay, these are kind of fun to, like, these are getting ridiculous to, like, I like how ridiculous it's getting. And it's the Fast and Furious movies. Yeah. Like, they're so ridiculous now that I'm like, yeah, that's cool. They're driving down a fucking side of a dam in the trail. I'm like, I want to see how, like, stupid this is going to possibly get. So I find that kind of interesting, too. But, like, there wasn't any, like, big major thing to me, though. Like, you know, they always would do that shit where, like, there would be a a movie trailer for something that's not coming out till like, Christmas or yeah, something. Yeah, right. Yeah, like a big reveal. There, yeah, or like a new Star Wars movie or just something that was like a big fucking thing. That's the problem, too. I, we, we talked about it last last year. It, it's the fact that they announce everything like they they were even I don't I don't I didn't pay close enough attention this year. So I don't know if it was the same, but I know last year they were showing a bunch like a bunch of the commercials were available online prior to the Super Bowl. Yeah, that's ridiculous. Like, I think that's completely stupid at this point. The point should be to get people to watch the ad you paid four billion dollars for uh not to be able to see it on youtube first yeah it's really um, weird and then uh they had the jennifer lopez and aflac duncan one people were talking about and i didn't really care about that yeah i didn't really care about any of them frankly it was just like a lot of celebrities doing stupid shit. so i'm like okay yeah like, the one I, with diddy yeah for like that, yeah whatever you know, like, I don't really care. They did like, the Grease thing with Travolta. 
It is fucking weird, though. I'll say this. This is one that struck me as weird. The one that was, uh, uh, it was DoorDash, I think it was. But it was like, it had like a lot of, like, internet famous and somewhat famous, like, chefs. And it had Ray Kwan in it. And I'm like, dude, there's a dude from fucking Wu-Tang in a commercial during the Super Bowl. Like, this is when, like, you can tell you're getting old. Because, like, culturally relevant things to you that were never celebrated by the mainstream are now, like, Super Bowl fucking commercials. Yep. So it's it's pretty weird. But, you know, I guess, like I said, it's a sign of getting fucking old. Yeah, yeah. I was, like, one of, one of the other ones was Alicia Silverstone reprised Cher Horowitz. And I didn't even see that one. And it was all right because she still looks good. You know, I always thought Alicia Silverstone was hot and everything. It's, again, it just goes back to what you were just saying. It's kind of a nostalgia thing. And and probably the best the best one for me was definitely Cranston and, and Aaron Paul with the Breaking Bad one for <laughs> Dude, popcorn. I, I saw somebody uh, brought this up on Twitter. They were like, "So basically, every Super Bowl commercial this year is, hey, remember this? Now buy this." Yeah, that's what it is. Like so, whatever. They had I mean, Steve Martin and a- Ben Stiller in one, like a Pepsi one. Oh yeah, uh, Zoolander too uh, <laughs> yeah. was doing a bunch of shit. Like, so they brought the character. Like, that's always weird to me. Whenever you're like an actor and they have you like reprise an old character, yeah. to sell a fucking product to sell Pepsi. Like, yeah, like, do you really need? Like, couldn't they just? Let's be honest. Couldn't they just show a fucking commercial where they pour Pepsi in a glass and be like Pepsi? Like, fucking Dude, people are going to drink Pepsi anyways. The like, best, the best one are those is. If you go to the movie theaters and and especially like the the amped up ones, like the I forget what they're even specifically called, like Cinema X or whatever the hell. I know exactly. They and make it's you thirsty. They, I, I hate pop, and it makes you thirsty. Yeah, it's like yep. fizz, like fizz fizzing, and you know, Dude, it's like okay. get an ice cold Coke. Okay, I have to go on a side tangent here for just one second because I'll never understand this, and it kind of makes my skin crawl in a way. And it's even worse, like, it's not so much anymore, but it was even worse, like, with the radio. Like, I don't understand this. Please make this make sense. I don't know if you can do this or not, but I would appreciate it if you could. But why was it, like, with all that shit, like, beer commercials or, you know, like, Pepsi and shit like that? Like, you know, you'd be, like, listening to the radio and it's like, get a new, go get a bush light. It's it's like, Like, what? Like, oh, man, they just poured a beer. We got to pull the fuck over. <laughs> I can't handle it. Like, why does that? Like, no one's like, buy new baby diapers. Yeah. Like, oh, yeah, I better get them diapers now that I heard noises. Like, they can't just bring up, like, Coca-Cola. And you're like, yeah, I don't really want that. But if it was like Coca-Cola with a bunch of weird fucking sounds, you're like, I can't. We got to stop immediately and get Coca-Cola. I'm going to die. Like, it's the weirdest selling point. If you know anything, I don't. Please tell me. Yeah, I, no, I, it's I, just. I need it. It's just their idea of trying to entice you, you know, and like maybe these things. Because it's there, there's like a whole world of food doctoring for commercials. I'm sure you've seen that, like a Burger King yep. commercial. Like the, if you like ate the burger. Yeah, I was just going to say, if you ate the burger <laughs> in the commercial, you would die instantaneously. Your, st- your yep. stomach would self-combust. But, I mean, I, I think it's another thing, too, just as we always do, just aging ourselves for the perspective on it. And and we've talked about it before. You know, you grow up in the 80s into the 90s, and, you know, especially going back to the 80s, there's three channels. 
that everybody watches. True. So there's like a handful of commercials. And then there's, you know, in the 90s, you know, Fox gets introduced and gets bigger and things like that. Now where we're at, and again, it goes back to the constant themes that we talk about with everything that we cover, but the oversaturation again. And and it's like, you know, now, now there's all these channels, even streaming services that have commercials. So there's, you know, hundreds of times more ads and things than there were just 10, 15, 20 years ago. And, and it's going to be a lot of hit or miss. It's, it's just like we we're just talking about the, the movies. You know, it's like th- th- there's a million movies coming out every year now, as opposed to in 99 where there was like 500. And you have to seep through all this horse shit to find the gems. And, and it's a lot like advertising. It's kind of goes into the, you know, the category with, with everything nowadays, you know, having just so much shit. Again, it goes back to that. Yeah, it's really bizarre when you think about it, like how that stuff, like how we, because dude, consider this, like we're pretty much like the first generation of actual consumers. You know what I mean? Like, but we've talked about this before, prior to us, people just bought shit they needed. Like only really wealthy people bought things that they wanted. And then the baby Um, boomer generation kind of got set up financially. Yep. And then it's like, and by the time we were young, it was basically like, buy shit you want. Like that's all life became since then, which is, you know, that's, and that's why you see, you see that reflected in commercials, because I guarantee you, if you watched a bunch of Super Bowl commercials from 1975, it would be for the kind of shit you would expect, like motor oil and fucking peanut butter. And, you know, like now you watch commercials and it's like, yeah, there's liquor ads and stuff, but like there's commercials for shit that's like, I don't even know what that is. Yeah, like, and that's the thing too. It's a generational difference. It's like you know they have to appeal to the, the like they're they're going to market like you said the people that are spending the money. You know, so like whatever that demographic is, that's what they're going to try to appeal for. to, right? And dude, it's like what, the one thing that I always think about every year, and it kind of stops at the Super Bowl. But if you watch football every Sunday, right, you'll know exactly what I'm talking about. They always have these commercials. They run all the time, and you recognize the company. But you don't know exactly what the commercial's for. Like, it'll be like, IBM has systems all throughout the United States and the world. And we work to get the information that companies and people need each and every day. And they show, like, people walking through factories and shit like that. And it's like, because IBM, when it comes to moving you, we move life. And then you're like, I know what IBM is. Like, that was a computer company. Like, they don't sell personal. Like, the fuck was that for? (laughs) Yeah, you don't even know what it's for. No, like, I understand that corporations might use them for, like, infrastructure and moving product. But, like, why the fuck do I need to see that? It's not like if I see a Budweiser commercial, I'm like, they want me to go to a bar or a store and buy a fucking beer and then go buy more of it. But with it, it's like IBM. Like, if it ain't a personal computer, what do you think I'm doing? Yeah, are you, like, even, are you even selling anything? No, that's what I'm saying. Or it's like, just, like, making means- awareness for your company. Yeah, like it's the same for fucking car commercials where it's like the new Chevy blah blah blah. I'm like, well, it's not like anybody's sitting at home, like, well, goddamn, I've been needing a way to get places and I have not been able to figure out. But now I see they have these things with wheels that I can purchase and operate them to get place. Like, everyone knows what a fucking car is. You don't go buy one unless you need one, unless you're fucking like a billionaire or like really wealthy. So what the fuck, like, do you, do I need to see a fucking Toyota commercial? I know what a Toyota is. Like, I get it. Yeah. And again, for the cost of the ad. Yeah. Like we're going to pay $85 million in ads this year 
so we could sell the exact same amount of cars that we sold last year. <laughs> right? Like, I don't know. But I think that's enough pining on the commercial. <laughs> yeah. But, but uh, let's talk about the fucking game, the J, shall we? Let's do it. Uh, pretty good game. Uh, 38-35, we saw the Chiefs get their second Super Bowl in four seasons. Patrick Mahomes was going to win the MVP. Uh, he was 21-27 with three touchdowns and 182 yards. Uh, nice day for uh, Pacheco, the running back. He had 15 attempts for 76 yards and a touchdown. Travis Kelsey also had six receptions for 81 yards and one touchdown in the win. Uh, comparatively, uh, Jalen Hurts had uh, a much better game than Mahomes, in my opinion. He was 27 of 38 with a touchdown with 304 yards uh, passing. He also had 15 attempts for 70 yards rushing and three rushing touchdowns, the most for a uh, quarterback in Super Bowl history. Um, it's basically a tale of kind of one mistake, and that was the fumble uh, by Jalen Hurts. Uh, I think without that fumble, they probably win the game, and I think that if they don't, that there's still a really good, you know, chance that Jalen Hurts should have been the MVP. I still think he should have probably been the MVP of the game, even with them losing, which is kind of crazy. Right, that just um, never happens. No, it just it rarely happens. But I think it's happened maybe three times in NFL history. So, um, but dude, this game, I still think like the Eagles are the best team. Um, I Patrick Holmes is without a doubt the best player in the National Football League. Um, I was wrong in my pick, and I shouldn't have picked against him. I won't do it again. Yeah, we mentioned that um, when we were picking the Eagles. Yeah. It's, it's tough to pick things. against Patrick Mahomes, and then you even throw in Andy Reid and Kelsey. You know, and, those dude, three I'll be guys. honest with you. See what you think about this. Like, they could play this game ten times, right? And I really don't know who would win more games out of the two teams. Right. I don't. Yeah, they're pretty like, even. Like, like you said, it was almost like one of those games where – it really didn't necessarily show you who was better. It just showed you who outlasted with the, the time and, and going in with the mistakes. Cause I completely agree with you. Jalen Hurts fumble was probably number one, but right behind it was the punt return. The chiefs had a big punt yeah. return that, that yep. you know, really swayed the game. And it's, you know, it, it, it was a good game, but I, I hate games that on a, on a field goal like this, it kind of feels like, a team didn't really win. It felt like they just didn't have enough They time. just outlasted. Yeah, it was a, a pretty predominant consensus that most people thought it was a good game, but very anticlimactic ending. And, of course, with the, the holding penalty towards the end of the game, that uh, even the player himself said it was holding, so he wasn't complaining. I mean, he, no, gra- I he grabbed them. Was- it just has to go in. Mm-hmm. We said this all year about the NFL refs this year. It, it's just the, the key word, consistency. And I think that's yep. what people had a lot of problems with because they only called like three things all game and then you're going to call kind of a little hold like that. And dude, I'm pretty sure that was the only holding penalty they called. Yeah. The entire game. Right. So, uh, dude, it's it's weird. Like, it was a good game to watch. Like, I was into it. It was a fun game to watch. You know, I like It was. It was a good game. Uh, so I'm definitely not mad at it. You know what I mean? But there are things too, you know, like, it would go like I, I don't know it's it, it was a really good game but it's hard to explain like it's so weird to me how different the Super Bowl is starting to feel from other games and I don't mean because of the pageantry and shit it just feels like a weird game like they've been off for two weeks generally speaking um you know so some of the on-field momentums kind of died down like I guarantee you and I believe this that if they would have taken no time off and just played the Super Bowl right away, the Eagles would have definitely won. No doubt in my mind. 
uh, especially with Mahomes not getting yeah, time we to mentioned heal up, that. which I mean, kudos to him for doing. Like the dude's, he's incredible. He's the best player in the league, so it doesn't surprise me. Um, but dude, and, and I seen somebody bring this up too, and I kind of agree with it. I'm tired. Like I get it with the regular season. I'm tired of the MVP constantly having to be the quarterback because there's a dude who plays special team. Like he had two, he almost returned two touchdowns, uh, like fumbles for touchdowns. He did return one. The other one got switched back. Um, and they were wrong on that because it was most likely it, it, it was a clean call. They said it was an incomplete pass or whatever it was. Um, but it's like, dude, you know, Pick the player that does the best. It doesn't have to be the fucking quarterback. Yeah, the most quarterback the, the most impactful player. That's what it should be, frankly. Yeah. Um, now, most valuable is a different story. We've talked about that many times throughout the years, but but it is Patrick Mahomes. So, like, I'm not super mad about it, but it's just kind of weird. No, because you know what? He didn't yeah. have ridiculous passing yards with a buck eighty-two as you went over. Hey, Ed, but he was. But he had the three touchdowns. He was so. he was twenty-one for twenty-seven with three touchdowns. So that's yep. you know. It is what it is. It's, I mean, it's there's not a lot like, dude. That the, I will say this: I felt like uh, in a year where we saw defense be so important, we saw a situation where it's like defense really didn't matter. Both teams scored thirty five points plus, um, so that was a little disappointing. Um, I mean, it says a lot about both teams' offenses and how good they are, but. I mean, I, I don't like to see that type of thing. I mean, I don't know what you could really do about it, but it just it's kind of frustrating, I guess, to see the game work out like that. Kind of like teams just said fuck it on the defensive side of things, um, especially after the Eagles didn't get treated like that by anybody the entire playoffs until this game. So uh, kudos to Kansas City because they definitely you know they got the win, and I'm not like you know it's not like they're paper champions or don't deserve it at all. It really was a, a tale of two halves, wasn't it, Hey Ed? You know, you got the Eagles, the number two overall ranked defense this year in the NFL, looking really good in that first half, kind of, you know, keeping the Kansas City Chiefs offense at bay for the most part, just giving up uh, seven points in each of the first two quarters. And then they just let Kansas City come down the field. I think they scored on every drive in the second half. So, Yep. I mean, yeah. dude, the one thing that, that this game did teach me, though, and I know that a lot, a lot of stuff will change, obviously, but, like, dude, these two teams, to me, are just significantly better than everybody else. Like, people are like, oh, the Bills have it. They, no, they don't. They're not better than Yeah, because it's, it's we, we've said this a lot. It, it's very tough to be fully balanced. I'm talking top to bottom balanced yep. in the modern NFL. Depth. Yeah, depth, <laughs> special teams, trenches, Star players, good, all that stuff. Good coaches. Coaches, uh, and that's what they the, have. Uh, lady Luck's on your side with injury. And yeah. like the, that stuff. Because like you said, you, you know, Buffalo's a good example. It's like the, the running game's not there. You know, good yeah, coaching. Josh can, Allen's uh, still throwing too many picks. Allen's throwing picks. You know, it's, they, uh, have, then, they have more holes than, than these two teams. And, and that's your point where these teams are just loaded uh, every, and you everywhere. Could, and then look at the, you know the 49ers, like they're loaded up, but they got hammered by Philly. Yeah, and, and then they had that weird quarterback issues. Quarterback. Yep. Uh, and then you have a team like Cincinnati, who seems like they're there, but like obviously they regressed this season because they couldn't get over the hump against Kansas City, a team that they typically beat. So you know, I mean, it's going to be interesting because like all I think a lot of these teams are in positions to get better. Um, I think that the thing that hurts Buffalo and uh, the 49ers is similar, 
in that next year is when Josh Allen's contract kicks in. So the big money's coming through. So good luck trying to uh, improve your team whenever you have a quarterback that's on a major deal. Uh, and then the Niners, what are they going to do with him? Is Brock Purdy still an anomaly? Uh, should they make them, you know, because you've got guys like Aaron Rodgers, David Carr, uh, potentially on the move. Like, do they make a move for one of those guys? Um, who knows? You know what I mean? Because there's there's decisions to be made for everybody, obviously. Um, but yeah, man, I just think that these are the two teams that everybody's chasing. And it's not as simple as teams just adding a guy or two and being able to compete with these teams because that's not going to be the case. Right. Yeah, I think and- – you know, two two really important things we we keep pointing out. It's it's the more unglamorous kind of stuff in the fantasy football culture of of the star players and the the receivers getting all these yards and the quarterbacks getting all these yards and touchdowns and everything. And that's the the trenches, and and like you said, the the intangibles, like the the things that that fill in that you don't necessarily like. You know, I think the modern age too. This you know special teams, I think, is kind of lacking overall in the NFL. So if you do have good special teams, that's another huge advantage. Absolutely. You know, th- things like that. But yeah, I think that the, uh, the, the trenches is something that we were really talking about with the, the Eagles uh, towards the end and the lack thereof of a lot of other teams in, in the NFL. And it just shows you how important that is to have the, the really strong D line and O line. Yep. Absolutely. So let's take a look uh, before we go to another commercial break, the Jay about, uh, the NFL Honors, uh, which happens the night before, or well, the week before. Now it's Thursday before Super Bowl Sunday. And uh, this is where they announce, uh, you know, all the typical awards and everything. So uh, let's take a look at that and we can uh, see how they, they kind of stack up here, the Jay. So first and foremost, Dak Prescott wins Walter Payton Man of the Year Award. So good for him. That's not really an on, on the field thing. It's definitely more off the field. I was just mad that um, uh, Cam didn't win it. Yeah, I typically root for the Steeler, who's up for that, generally speaking. Uh, Assistant coach of the year is D'Amico Ryans, the defensive coordinator of the San Francisco 49ers, who is now the head coach of the Houston Texans. So that'll be kind of interesting to see how he moves on from there. Obviously, it's not hard to see why he would get that, because they had the best defense in the league for the majority of the year. Yeah. Coach of the year, Brian Dable from New York Giants. That was my choice for coach of the year. Yeah, as well. he did a great job with the Giants this year. So good kudos to him for that. Can't argue. Uh, comeback, comeback player of the year. This one isn't even close. Geno Smith, Smith. Smith, Seahawks. Good for him. I want to see it, like how that continues with him too, because it'd be kind of cool if he's really good again in Seattle for sure. Uh, the Jets with a double dose of rookie awards, the offensive and defensive rookies of the year. Ahmad Sauce Gardner. Cornerback for the Jets won Defensive Rookie of the Year. And Garrett Wilson, wide receiver, won the Offensive Rookie of the Year. So the Jets seemingly heading in a better position, too, and potentially, you know, getting Aaron Rodgers in the offseason with Jay. Do you think that – do you foresee that as being something that happens? It was one of those things – I know it's too early. Yeah, and you kind of go back and forth. Like when they that first started, like the kind of online rumors and all that, I'm like, there's no way. There's no way that Aaron Rodgers is going to go to the Jets. But then you see the potential of the young players – in New York and, and where they might be at and things like that. And then you hear other, other reports and stuff. And and you listen to, you know, I try to pick up cryptically when he's on Pat McAfee, you know, I catch him 
Aaron Rodgers talk because uh, he pops yep. up on that show a good amount on where he's at. And like you said, it's kind of too early, but the, the whole point is, yeah, I'm kind of swaying back towards thinking that it, it would never happen to like, uh, maybe. Yeah, I'll be honest with you. I don't. I think Green Bay's kind of done with him. Yeah, I, th- I don't think he's going to be in Green Bay next year. I, 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 I think they're 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 getting tired of this off season. They right, have have and it is it's ridiculous. And they they moved on from Devontae Adams, uh, kind of because of this type of stuff. And I mean, I think it's it's just time for them to move on, right. frankly. And and you know what? They're probably going to get a boatload from the Jets if you know they want to trade them. So like. They're in a good position, so trade them, man. Get them fucking picks and get that money off your payroll. Exactly. And you know, and I saw, listen to how crazy this is. So uh, Mike Tannenbaum, who's on ESPN, he's a former Jets uh, general manager, and he brought this up. He said, "If I was the Jets, the only way I would make this is if uh, we could do a two-year deal." And he said the way I would set it up is thirty million the first year, ninety million the second. Wow. And he said the reason why I would do it is because it's like I would basically need a guarantee that you're going to give us more than a season because if you're doing only doing one season, we're not going to trade for you. Smart. So I see. But I don't know how that's going to work. Probably the Jets will do the worst thing possible, but I could see it happening. You know, it wouldn't surprise me. Um, Offensive Player of the Year, Justin Jefferson from the Vikings, who's actually another choice of mine to win that one. Uh, That's starting to become you know, the best player that's not a quarterback. Yeah, that's what it seems. That's where that comes in the play, like you were mentioning, with the MVP always having to be a quarterback, at least offensive player of the year. It seems they go away from picking a quarterback because those are the other two candidates, Mahomes and Hurts. And uh, defensive player of the year was Nick Bosa from the San Francisco 49ers. Probably less said by me, the better. That was actually your choice to win. Yeah, I figured that was going to happen. And, of course, Patrick Mahomes winning the MVP. Um, I'll be honest with you. I still think Burrow should have won the MVP, um, but I'm not mad. It's he's the best. Yeah, it's tough game. to argue. So, you know that that kind of just that I think that's basically why people like stuff like this because it gets people arguing in the first place, and that's also why the NFL does it because it gets people talking about their product. Right. Yeah, it's fun to debate. We said that. I just you know I'm not gonna fight somebody over it. Agree. So, <laughs> with that. We also got the lineup of Hall of Famers uh, for this year. So here they are. Uh, quarterback Ken Riley, who is no longer with us. Uh, defensive lineman Joe Klecko, Linebacker Chuck Howley. Uh, coach Don Coriel, who's no longer with us as well. Uh, quarterback Rondé Barber. Uh, Darrell Rebus, another cornerback. Uh, linebacker DeMarcus Ware. And linebacker uh, Zach Thomas, as well as offensive tackle Joe Thomas. So... Pretty good year, but I have seen a few people bring this up, Jay. I don't know what you think about this, but they said that um, they're starting to be too many people going in first ballot, and it's keeping a lot of older people off. And if you remember years ago, like first ballot was generally for the all-time greats. You would see really good guys going in on second and third ballots because basically that's how it should be. To wait a little bit. Yeah, you're exactly right. And there. I think that you're seeing a lot of guys like. They, they basically, and this is where I knew they were going to bring it up whenever I seen some stuff on this, is receiver. They're like, right now the receivers are in a log jam. And it's like, dude, Torrey Holt's not in the Hall of Fame. Yeah, that's ridiculous. And and Isaac Bruce is, who is the, they, they were like one and two right. on the same offense. But like Torrey Holt has better numbers. Like, dude, so, and, and I seen this brought up. You remember Art Monk? Of course. When he retired, he was the number one receiver in NFL history. And during his wait, guys passed him. 
and it made him stay out forever. And it's like this is ridiculous. He was the number yeah, one for guy his time. All the time. Yeah. When he retired, what else do you want him to do? Exactly. Create new records, like. So you know, but uh, the one thing that I thought was kind of cool about it though is literally besides Joe Thomas, everybody was defense. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good point. I think that's just going to happen. Uh, I think that's just coincidence. Hey, Ed, but I did notice that it as well. Yeah. Now I have a question for you out of this group here. Uh, who is the the person that you think deserves to go in the most out of this batch? And was there any that had you scratching your head or ones that you don't think belong at all? No, not scratching my head or don't don't belong. Um, you know, I mean, Rondé Barber is is a Buccaneers legend. Uh, he had. 40 interceptions and 25 sacks in his NFL career, which is the only player um, to do that. Uh, you know, I always love Zach Thomas. He's one of those just little intangible players. I always like, man, little beast. Yeah, it's tackle machine. Uh, you know, my second team, I always say is the Dolphins for my ties to Florida. I mean, DeMarcus Ware's DeMarcus Ware, Darrell Revis. Uh, yeah, no, I think it's I think it's a Dude, good class, man. Revis was the best corner in the league for six consecutive Revis Island. years. Yep. Uh, 100%. He played for the fucking Jets. <laughs> yeah, like, yeah. He and that it. Jets team, and they were good. Right. That was like the last time the Jets were really good is when they had him. Yeah. So, and as much as I hate the Browns, Joe Thomas is probably, he, he's the best player they've had since they got their team again. Yeah, he's our Iron Man. It, so, kudos to them on that. So, that's it, the J. That wraps up. Our From coverage. hard knocks in August to the Super yep. Bowl here in February on the What's Roll podcast, it's, the NFL journey. It's literally the only thing that we cover consistently that goes through our seasons. Like we started on season three, we end in season four, and it's always going to be that way because the way the NFL season falls. Yep. So uh, I hope you guys uh, listening have enjoyed our NFL coverage for the year. It's something that me and the Jay both get a lot of enjoyment out of. Uh, we're both big football fans. So that's another year in the books. You guys are going to get a break from the football talk. So it's more time for things like wrestling, movies, and the other things that we cover here Boobs. on the podcast. And titties, of course. So speaking of which, uh, we're going to take another commercial break. And whenever we come back, it is time for another week of the Month of the Samurai. We have a double feature of Lone Wolf and Cub goodies for you guys at home. And, uh, you know, it's going to be an interesting week. So Baby Cart in Peril from 1972 and Baby Cart in the Land of Demons from 1973. So stay tuned. We'll be back right after this, right here on the What's Real Podcast. Hey, everybody. This is Herman James with the What's Real Podcast. Finally giving me something to do here. It's been a while since I talked to you guys, but I'm actually helping them out doing an advertisement for advertisers. That's right. If you would like to advertise here on the What's Real Podcast and join the team, just shoot us an email today. We got cheap, easy, and affordable rates, and we can hook you up with some kick-ass advertisements. Just hit us up at Gmail. It's at whatsrealpod at gmail.com. That's whatsrealpod at gmail.com. Join the team with me, my brother Timothy James, the wizard behind the boards, Cam, the J, and Hey Ed. It's the What's Real team for some advertisers. Hit us up, whatsrealpod at gmail.com today. And we're back, and it is time for more Month of the Samurai. First up, 1972's Baby Cart in Peril. Uh, this is from Bucci Sato, a new director in the series for the first time. Uh, in the fourth film of the Lone Wolf and Cub series, Ogami Ito is hired to kill a tattooed female assassin and battles Retsudo, 
head of the Yagyu clan, and his son, Gunbei. Um, of course, this is just another trip down uh, the road to hell, so to speak, uh, for the son and father team. Uh, but in this one, it's this is the one to me where like it's kind of like a what do you call it like like a rest stop in the series of sorts where they kind of separate the father and the son a little bit uh, for the first time really in the series and it's the problem with this one like it's not bad by any stretch of the means but it's you know but I'm trying to think of the best way to put this. Considering it's like an offset piece of the series, it has some of the most important moments in the series, and it's actually really good. Yeah, I agree. If that makes sense. Like, they still managed to get a really good story out of this one and then tie it up together with, obviously, something that's in the long run. Because the movie before this one was completely to the side, essentially. Um, This one's like bringing them back into the fold of the, the road. That's generally, I guess, the best way to put it. And it's also the one where Agami Ito probably takes the most damage in the entire series uh, overall. Yeah, that's for sure. And and we have to, as we do, hey, Ed, flow of the show, as we say on the What's Roll podcast. If uh, you heard in the wrapping up the NFL segment, we referenced some boobs. That's one great thing about Lone Wolf and Cub. Always got some boobs, some nice boobs in this, and that uh, female tattooed assassin. Yep, that's literally the opening shot of the movie. We'll take it. (laughs) Yeah. Yep. It's uh, that to me. She's one of my favorite characters in the series. Yeah. Um, it's really cool what they do with her. Um, kind of like they there's a bunch of different like characters that that Agami Ito runs up against in the in the series, but like this one's like really fleshed out. Like they gave her an entire like segment to herself. Um while he's dealing with the Yagyus and, and shit like that. So, and I'm trying to think, like, this one, I guess this one's less about their journey, so to speak. Like, you're still... I would say of, so, yeah. It, you're kind of... Uh, it's the one that's really examining the samurai stuff. You know what I mean? Yeah, like it's kind of it's adding dimensionality and depth to the characters. And to what a samurai yeah too because it's like you know because even you know there there's certain like moments of respect between assassins and things like that like you're really getting more into the code and stuff like that now granted this one is a little bit more like you know like we talked about previously that like shogun assassin was like the grindhouse form of these movies this is the one installment that fits the grindhouse series more than the other ones. Uh, there's, you know, it's bloody as shit. There's a lot of nudity in it. Like, it, this specific one would have played well in Grindhouse Theater. Yeah. You, but the the thing, too, is they're, they're starting to get into, like, the rivalries and, you know, like, he, you could tell that, like, how I even said that he, he takes the most damage in this one. It, it's the first one in the series where it starts to look like, you know, things are catching up to them. Yeah, they're getting threatened a bit more. And they're having a harder time fighting off the enemies. and They're facing tougher enemies and things like that. Um, the, the one thing that's really cool about this one, too, is like the cinematography is still good. 
Um, even though it's different, like you can tell it's a different director and everything, but they still manage to like keep a lot of the same things at heart throughout the series. Like they made the series the series, they kept them intact here. Right. Yeah, and it's this one's great too with the the development of the kid of Diagoro because Absolutely. he's older now, you know, he's like one years old in the first few and now he's walking and, and talking and stuff. We we're kind of saying that in the last one. And then like you mentioned, they get separated and he gets lost. And when this first happens, he encounters a dangerous samurai. And this is one of the best scenes in this where the samurai in his dialogue is talking about the kid's eyes. And yep. he's like, he has no hint of fear, you know, yep. and stuff. And that's just, dude, it's and just it, goosebump. And this is the one where you start to realize, and they they will get into it more, but like this is the one where you start to realize that he's becoming very much like his dad. Right. And I always kind of thought that was a missed opportunity in the series that like nobody ever did like the son of the samurai type thing, like when he's older. Um, but whatever, you know, I you know, there's I'm sure there's a million reasons why they never did that. Um, but it's the, the thing that's like this one started to feel like it was going to be melodramatic at points too, but they kind of like go in and out of it so it doesn't become problematic because it certainly seemed like they were just getting into some talking and like, okay, what's going on here? Like maybe they didn't have the budget in this one, but none of that's really the case because it kind of snaps out of that pretty quickly. Um, the one thing that always cracks me up about this one is the score. There's like a lot of jazz in this one for some reason. Yeah, it is. Like, I noticed that. It's hilarious. I don't know why they decided to go that route. I mean, maybe they're trying to be relevant with the time, but it doesn't really fit the movie at all. But I, I still like it. Yeah, like, it's, it's different. It's not like it ruins anything. Right. Um, but, you know, this is kind of like more of the same that just seeing a little gradual updating of the characters too. Because like, like I said, you're starting to see Ogami Ito kind of get worn out a little bit. Uh, you're seeing the son having to pick up for his dad a little bit more and kind of get involved more. Um, but the thing that saves this one, with that being said, like we were talking about, it's the the female ninja. She saves this movie. Like she's really interesting. She holds more uh, of the attention than she probably should. Um, but it's kind of a neat break in the series that they would introduce like a cool character like halfway through the way that's only in the one movie um, and. It's an interesting way. Like, I don't want to give away the ending or everything, but like, I thought the way that they did that was really cool too. And it just kind of lends themselves. Like, you could tell that that character was treated with care throughout, and they didn't want to just have her have a typical like he kills her or this type of thing happens. Like, they wanted to do something different for this character, and that made kind of the difference. Yeah, it goes into what you were mentioning earlier with them getting deeper into the samurai culture and what it means to be a samurai in the climax between them kind of leads to like the mutual respect that you were saying, you know, and yep. then uh, Ito, like he really ends up respecting her and recognizing their similar fates. And, you know, of course he, he respects her skill as a warrior and, and then, you know, it all leads into a final sword fight between the two, which is really good. And this is also the one where they fully start to establish that he's just a fucking mercenary. Like if you don't have money for him, he doesn't care. Yeah, like, we said he, he wants, wants to he wants to hear the specifics on why you're sending him to kill the the target and he wants yep. the five five hundred Ryo. Yeah, and if you and if can't you don't, do that, that's that. Then fuck off. Yep. Like he's not dealing with it at all. Just like, those, those two those, those two things. Yep. Yep. And he'll do it. So like 
they kind of establish that. So it starts, this is also the one where they start to make him not look like the greatest person. Um, but it's, they explain everything. You know what I mean? It right. kind of just looks that way. So, and I think that's interesting because they do, it's, you know, they're kind of showing like the fallacy of a character, like how no man is perfect. You know, people have rough times, good times, bad times, and sometimes you just got to do shit to survive. So it's not always about good and evil with him. And I think that that's kind of something that, you know, they've established from the beginning of the movie that, you know, this guy's basically the hero, but he's also going to be an anti-hero in certain situations. So, uh, but, you know, this one's a really cool entry into the series. It fits in there pretty well. And uh, frankly, I, I enjoyed this one a lot. Yeah, I liked it a lot. And, uh, you know, so many so many things were in agreement with Hey Ed, and I'm right with you with the tattooed female assassin you know, as the villain in this and, and just her, the depth of her character and um, the coolness of her character. I, I was wondering, of course, just from a film filmmaker kind of behind the scenes side, if, you know, back in 72, like, it's like, did, is she like an actress that said, fuck it and get those tattoos or, you know, they did them for the movie, nah. which I'm sure. Yeah. But it's yeah, still really awesome. cool. Those are really cool. Yeah. It looks good. It's really cool. Uh, it adds certainly something to the whole aura of the samurai and shit too because they kind of explain the tattoos why she got them you know and again they kind of compare her to the boy you know what i mean like there's you're starting to see things and then it's like of course leads into his dad so you're like okay he's basically a samurai as a child so uh he might end up being the greatest samurai of all time obviously because that's what his dad is so uh, but that is Lone Wolf and Cub, Baby Cart and Peril. As we do here on the show, we have a five-star rating scale. I'm going to give Baby Cart and Peril four stars. I'm right with you. Hey, uh, four stars. All right. So we're going to take another quick commercial break. Whenever we come back, we're going to have another uh, Lone Wolf and Cub entry. This is from 1973. This is Baby Cart in the Land of Demons. So stay tuned. We'll be back right after this, right here on the What's Real Podcast. Join the What's Real podcast this February for Month of the Samurai. We are going to be covering all of the Lone Wolf and Cub films from Sword of Vengeance all the way to White Heaven and Hell. Month of the Samurai. So join the What's Real podcast in the month of February with a story of father and son revenge in Month of the Samurai. And we're back, and it is time for part two of the Month of the Samurai. This is Lone Wolf and Cub, Baby Cart, and the Land of Demons from 1973, with Kenji Masumi returning to the director's chair. In the fifth film of the Lone Wolf and Cub series, Agami Ito is challenged by five warriors. Each one, uh, each has one-fifth of Agami's assassin fee and one-fifth of the information he needs to complete his assassination. Um, this one is all mission driven, essentially. Um, he's trying to, uh, assassinate somebody that he's paid for, uh, in the process, he comes across these five warriors. They want to give him an assassin's fee, but he has to prove that he's a master swordsman by defeating all of them. Um, now the funny thing about this one is they have these characters and that looks to be the, I guess, path of the movie, but he kind of runs through them pretty easily. And then 
uh, has to carry out the full mission, uh, which you know involves probably the greatest fight that he's he's felt up to this point uh, at the end of the movie, uh, Gazuntite, if you will. Thanks, brother. Uh, um, but you know this one is kind of feverishly paced. That like in the last movie we talked about, like there's some downtrodden times and stuff, and they they kind of step away from the road. And this one is to me like they're fever feverishly running back on the road to get everything back on track again. Um, I do like this one, but it is you know it's right there with one of the lesser entries in the series. It's still really cool and it's really good, um, but there are other better entries in the series. And I think that if they could have timed out the last like. Between this one and the last one, they could have, you know, done them a little bit differently. So the pace was a little bit quicker in the last one, and it would have been a little bit slower in this one. Um, but with that being said, this movie doesn't really have a lot of time to get bogged down with anything. Um, and like I said, with the feverish pace like that, it's hard not to enjoy it because it's just constantly going from one cool thing to the next. Um, the five uh, warriors that he has to face are all pretty similar. Um, they have essentially a, uh, an advertisement looking to hire Lone Wolf and Cub on their masks, um, which gets his attention immediately. Um, and there are also a few oddball people in this movie that just want to help him because they, at this point they already know who he is and what he's doing. And they don't agree necessarily with what's happening with him. And so you get a little bit of that as well here too. And this is also the episode or of the series up to this point where it looks like um, Agami Ito might die. They even kind of fool you in one no, scene they, they and you think that he's dead, yeah. um, but he's not. And also, this is the one where they fully explain to you that the son is becoming his dad. He knows exactly what's going on. Um, he's less cutesy in this one. Uh, they have the scene where he basically gets, uh, you know, punished uh, and whipped, and it doesn't affect him. People are starting to be afraid of him. Um, you know, it, it, like the, it's just him and his father at this point in in the road are both hardened and pretty much are ready to die at any moment, both of them. And they they show that in this one, but this is also the one too where. Agami Ito is just going through fucking shit like a, a hot knife through butter. Like, it's been established that, like, you know that the series isn't over, and you know that, like, he's close to death, but he's also, in this one, been the most dangerous he's been in the entire series. Yeah, th this one's probably the most formulaic, you know, due to all those factors, you know, and kind of cartoonish of all of them. But, like you said, at the end of the day, it's still this world, and it's still a really cool entry in the series for sure there there was the one scene that, that i had noted where the ito kills the dude in the water again you know it's always the water scenes for the day yep. but there's all the blood you know <laughs> like we always talk about the dude's deaths like still you know saying their their last words dude, and everything and one of the coolest scenes in this movie is an assassination attempt where they have a, the, the guys on the boat and he swims underneath the boat yeah. and fucking cuts a hole. And the guy falls through it. All these guards go to the water to try and help him. And like there's got you know, like there's the guy on the horseback watching uh, by the shore. And it's like, and he notices something's wrong. He's like, okay, what's going on? Because everything's quiet. And then it's really fucking cool. 
like one by one, the bodies just start floating to the surface. Yep. And you realize that he's killed every fucking one of them under the water. And it's like, and then, you know, and then they get to that scene where it's like, then he's back to the baby cart and getting the weapons and shit. Like, and this is also the one, and it could work both ways here, where I think this was influenced by spaghetti westerns and it influenced spaghetti westerns because you're seeing a lot of the guy riding off into the sunset shit through the desert and stuff like yeah, that. Yeah, the, silhou- the silhouette shots. With the, the music playing. Yeah. Like, dun, 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 dun. Yeah. like, it's it's like, like you know that the journey's not over, but like this part of this installment of the, the battle is over and our heroes won again. Like, that type of thing. Which does make the ending a little anticlimactic. Well, that's but yeah, because that's what I was going to mention. That it's setting. It's this. This is the particular entry that's setting up the final showdown. Yeah, for the final you film. Got it. You know, so that that kind of sets the tone, like you're alluding to. And it's like you realize this is probably the last chance you're going to spend with them, where everything's not like up for like the, the they're getting ready for the showdown here. Like it's all or nothing. There's no more cutesy fucking, you know, traveling the road with my son type shit. Like we're getting to wrapping everything up. Um, and it's it's quite the journey, man, through all these movies and everything. And again, I've been doing this here on the show as we go through the J. But like, what are you thinking up to this point in the journey uh, as we're through like the fifth movie out of six? Yeah, it's like I said, dude, it's just so epic. And as a fan of Lord of the Rings and things like that. You know, this this holds its own with with all that stuff for for me and my preferences and tastes. You know, and uh, again, we we talked about the somewhat comparison just in the world of of samurai to to the Seven Samurai and stuff like that. And that's where I started with my samurai film watching. You know, mm-hmm. and so to to evolve into the Lone Wolf and Cub series, uh, this is everything I hope for and more. It really is. Um, you know, because this this had more of the scenes that you could tell were a big influence to Tarantino, as we've been talking about, and, and yep. specifically Kill Bill. Whereas there's the one scene where he's fighting a bunch of ninjas at once, and then ends up in another room full of enemies. You know, and yep. he's just taking on all these dudes, and then like we keep saying, it's the growth of of the sun and, and where the sun's journey is going to take them because this is kind of again setting up the final showdown and the last film in the series where Ido has given up on his soul and the demon way might carry Diagoro to a different destination you know yeah. so that that that's kind of starting to get you know those seeds planted in this one to 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 for the last one which I haven't seen so I'm like dude chomping at the bits like I'm gonna have to really kind of time when I watch this movie, you know, the climax, yeah. man, you know, I'm going to, I want to pay, ha- pay attention. None of that falling asleep stuff and, and really enjoy it. But uh, yeah, this, this series is, is an all time classic for me. Yeah. I mean, dude, it's, it's the kind of thing, like, I think people, there's people out there that know about it, but I don't know how many people have truly given it a chance. Well, and, and again, like, like we keep referencing uh Shogun assassin. A lot of yes. people know it from that, and it's just a completely different experience to watch all. Uh, what is it? Six of the films. Yeah, it's dude. It's really something. Like that's that's why I wanted to to bring it up here on the show and even kind of have you go through it because it really is a one off type thing. Like there's, I've never seen anything that's quite like exactly. This. Yep. And it's it fucking hits you. Like, dude, this movie has a little bit of everything. Like, there's emotional stuff in the movie. There's stuff where, like, you'll be ready to put your head through a wall. 
uh, like stuff that gets you pumped up, stuff that's like you can't, like really cool Boobs. shit, stuff that titties, <laughs> uh, fucking tattooed samurai women, cool villains, uh, a lot of bloodletting and stuff that you particularly wouldn't expect for like this era. I would think you know the the arterial blood blood spray stuff in this is solely from this. That's it was not from anything else. So anytime you see that kind of stuff, it comes from Lone Wolf and Cub. Um, I think it, it's also kind of the thing too that um it's like you said like it has the influence on a lot of other films and like this has this series has influence on movies that you wouldn't even recognize you know what i mean like they're not samurai movies they have nothing to do with japanese culture and stuff and it's still influenced something that the filmmaker does and the fact that these movies haven't been more widespread and more wide seen by people kind of blows my mind so we can explain it to you we can talk about these movies all we want but like it really like if you love movies and you love like epic shit or you like samurai stuff like you owe it to yourself to at least check it out because it's really fucking good and there's not much stuff quite like it like even other samurai things are not quite like this so um it, it kind of stands the test of time as well and uh it's it's a bummer but i'm, I'm happy that we definitely have another week of it yeah, at least we have one more week. And and it to to go in exactly what what you were saying, hey Ed, to anybody listening that uh, hasn't caught these yet and things like that, definitely off the bat we would recommend the Criterion Collection. Uh, it's an awesome yeah, set. It's ridiculous. It has everything you need here. And the other thing about it is is just ironically from a Japanese film series from the early seventies based off of a manga to. Promote this to somebody that might have like a hint of interest in it. I would be like, you know, people love binging and TV shows. Like we were mentioning last week, talking about it. That's kind of what this is. These are hour and a half entries. There's six of yep. them, so it's almost like you. I just feel like we're binging, uh, you know, every week, and and it's just yeah. an awesome way to to kind of take it all in. But it's it's definitely just a really easy watch. I'm I'm gonna do what I do and give it a little bit of time, but I might be popping these in again in the summer or something. Or these these are gonna be something I throw in just to have in the background for pump up stuff and different things. Uh, this this has become one of my my favorite things the last couple of years. No joke, Ed. Absolutely, man. So I agree there. I'm glad you're enjoying them. So. As we do with our five-star rating scale, the J, what do you got for Baby Cart and Land of Demons? Yeah, like I said, it was a little lacking. I, I think I gave everything at least four plus. I'm, I'm going to give this entry three and a half, but still loved it. Yeah, that's I give it three and a half, too. Still a very, very good movie. So we will check that out uh, next. Well, next week, uh, actually, we're going to do the last in the series, which, of course, is White Heaven and Hell from 1974 and a first-timer in the director's chair with the Yoshiyuki Kuroda. Uh, so that'll be interesting as we get to the climax of the Lone Wolf and Cub series next week here on the What's Real podcast. So we are going to take another quick commercial break. And whenever we come back, we're going to go down to the last drive-in with our friends Joe Bob Briggs and Darcy the Mail Girl for a pretty weird double feature uh, of The Phantom of the Mall from 1989 and Necromantic from 1988. So stay tuned. We'll be back with that and much more right after this right here on the What's Real podcast. This is Ed from the What's Real podcast. What would dad do? Suppose dad was going to create the greatest hangout spot in the world. Would he have more than 100 craft beers? Check. Hard to find sweet seasonal brews on tap? Check. Juicy burgers seasoned with goodness and grilled to perfection? Check. Signature dogs and beloved favorites on the menu? Check. Comfortable for friends and family, even your little brother? Check. Welcome to dad's. Well, 
That's what Dan, Steve, and Eric set out to do. Of course, the trio had spent some quality years working together at a certain hot dog and beer joint in Monroeville. That's when they came to the conclusion that they could shape a bar and restaurant with the beer they love, the food they love, and the people love they hang out with. So, Dad's was born. In its first year, Dad's has become a favorite hangout for many who stumbled in for the very first time. We hope to be your favorite spot, too. Check us out on the web at dadspub.com. Give us a call at area code 412-856-5666, located at 4320 Northern Pike, Monroeville, and 1050 Brayton Avenue, Pittsburgh, PA. That's Dad's. And we're back, and it is time to talk a little bit uh, last drive-in with Joe, Bob, and Darcy. They had a Valentine's special, which included a wedding uh, all in Las Vegas, and a double feature of movies, which we're going to take a look at this week here on the show. First up, from 1989 and director Richard Friedman, this is Phantom of the Mall, Eric's Revenge. A young man named Eric apparently dies in a suspicious house fire after saving his girlfriend, Melody. One year later, a new mall is constructed atop where Eric's house once stood, where a shadowy, uninvited guest is preying on the mall's crooked developers. Uh, Directed by Richard Friedman, who also made stuff like Scared Stiff, Uh, he directed an episode of uh, Tales from the Dark Side, the TV series, and he made 1987's Doom Asylum, which is a really, really crappy movie. (laughs) I don't know if you've ever seen Doom Asylum. It's, It's pretty bad. Uh, but this one is from 1989. The most interesting thing about it's probably its cast. Uh, we have Pauly Shore in this one, Morgan Fairchild, Ken Foray from Dawn of the Dead fame. Uh, we also have Rob Estes from the Silk Stocking series. That's an, that's the thing that I forgot about. Darcy was talking about saying how, how much she likes Silk Stockings. Yeah. And I was like, ah, Darcy's from our generation. And then, of course, Joe Bob's like, I know why you like that. Because he used to show on USA at 10 o'clock right after Monday Night Raw. And she's like, exactly. And that's that's why we're familiar as well. Of course. Um, also, it has Tom Fridley in it. Is Justin, the annoying mall owner's son, who is the uh, the hilarious dude from Friday the 13th Part 6. Yeah. Uh, in the camper. Yep. Uh, which is one of my favorites. Um, and, of course, Brink Stevens has a untitled cameo uh, or uncredited cameo in this one, too. Um, this one is kind of goofy. It's not super campy. It probably plays itself serious a little bit more than it should. Um, but overall, it's just, you know, it's, it's a slasher movie from 1989. And I tell people this all the time, like whenever people are getting into like slasher movies or, you know, maybe they've seen the basics, like the Friday 13th and stuff like that. And they'll be like, oh man, is this one any good? And I'm like, look at the year on it. And if it's not from like 80 to like 84-ish, it's, you're getting in the realm of like some really bad slashers. Some are enjoyable, some aren't. This one to me is just kind of a middle of the road one. Um, the most interesting thing about it is like seeing Pauly Shore in it. Ken Foray is a security guard. Morgan Fairchild because she sticks out. She's like the mayor. <laughs> uh, so it's like, Gregory you know, Scott Cummins pops up. And, and, and he's not Cummins. Uh, actually, uh, also also known as Max Dad from 
Uh, it's always sunny, so that's kind of funny to see him show up as a goofy red heron. And, of course, the crazy um, asshole in uh, Stone Cold. We got to just shout that oh, out. Oh, yeah, of course. You got to have that. Um, but, yeah, I mean, this one has a 91-minute running time. And, of course, whenever you watch movies with Joe Bob, they're longer because he has his segments. But I don't know about you, but, like, this movie felt like it was three hours. And yeah, I've seen seem it long. before. But I was like, man, this one's fucking going on forever. And I know that the, some of the segments that they did were a little bit longer. But, yeah, this one, uh, I've seen it before. I wasn't too thrilled that they were showing it again. So, it, it's, you know, it, there's not a whole lot in it. Like, there's not great gore. Um, it do, It's not like your typical run-of-the-mill slasher where it's super fun. Yeah, that's how I felt. It was pretty, right. pretty boring. Yeah, they're just kind of shitting around through a lot of the movie and uh, the one thing that it is known for, of course, it's the famous, uh, the famous mall, uh, Sherman Oaks. In many, many the Sherman Oaks Mall. It's in uh, Fast Times at Ridgemont High. It's in, I think, it's the same one in uh, Chopping Mall. Commando. Commando is another one. Like pretty much any '80s movie with a mall scene, it was Sherman Oaks uh, Mall. Yeah, because Joe Bob um, said he's like, yeah, probably because it was one of those situations where management at that particular mall at that particular time just really didn't regulate. You know, so it's like, oh, dude, we can, yeah, they just didn't care. Yeah, we can just do whatever. So let's go there. And you know, the movie—it uh, just doesn't stick. To, like, it, you don't really care why the killer's doing it. When they reveal why he's doing it, you're like, oh. Well, that's the thing. The and killer's like, not great in this. The Phantom. No, and Joe Bob does bring this up, and I was kind of glad that he did. In the late '80s, there was like this weird obsession with the Phantom of the Opera. Like, there's the Robert England Phantom of the Opera movie. Like, there's a bunch of weird Phantom of the Opera-related stuff that was going on at the time. And it was short-lived, but this one's the one where somebody had the great idea of turning the Phantom into a slasher. Um, but it just doesn't work. It, it's, eh. Like, there's some moderately entertaining stuff in this one. But, like, like Joe Bob even gave him credit for doing this. And I, it's the same thing I always thought about it. They made, The movie that's basically shot and maintained in a shopping mall finds a way to have a car chase. Yeah. <laughs> Which is very weird. Like, and it's it's very, like, low, but, like, all right, wreck the cars, but, like, don't wreck the shit out of the cars. Like, that kind of a stuff, kind of thing. So, you know, like like I said, it's kind of funny just for the character involvement, like, with Pauly Shore and Rob Estes and, like, these goofy characters. But other than that, it's like, eh, I can take it or leave it. Yeah, I, my, the two hi- highlights I have were, of course, the pianist, Getting his cock bit yeah. by the the cobra was ridiculous. Yep. Why? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> they came. They came back right to one of Joe Bob's segments from that, and he's like, "So the pianist gets his prick bit, or <laughs> he put yeah. it, you know." And uh, it's like, okay. And the, the other one was, of course, Morgan Fairchild's death. The the, the gorilla press out the yep. window. <laughs> That was good. Yeah, it's it's yeah. This movie definitely didn't understand the tone it was trying to. Like, yeah, it it's like all over the place. But you know, it is what it is. So, uh, like I said, I wasn't expecting a classic. I already seen this movie before. I didn't think I'd be watching it again. And oddly enough, I'd be saying the same thing uh, whenever they show the second movie. But uh, so the J for this one. Let's get a, a tagline for Phantom of the Mall. Eric's Revenge. I got a couple of them. The second one, it's like we always talk about the IMDb one that I don't think is official is the better one. But let me throw the one from the fucking actual poster at you. There was a nightmare at the mall. Eric the Phantom struck. 
wow, is that that's bad. That's real bad. Uh, real bad. The other one they should have maybe used, uh, be nice to Eric or Eric won't be nice to you. Jesus. <laughs> See, I like this one. The one that I found, because this is like a total video like yeah. tagline. Prices aren't the only thing being slashed. Like, And I got to say, this is one of those movies, too, that has like a way better cover than the movie itself. Like, it looks like it's going to be the coolest. Yeah, it does look like a cool cover. cover. But yeah, it's really not. So as we do on the show, a five-star rating scale. I'm going to give Phantom of the Mall, Eric's Revenge, two and a half. I was I was gonna give it two, hey Ed, but I'm gonna agree with you and give it a two and a half for the pianist's penis because that that yeah. got me dying. You got to bump it up because of that. So, all right, now we go on to yeah, the second. We need trip. a uh, a warning for those listening. Yeah. This one. Okay, guys. So this movie is called Necromantic, and I'm gonna read the uh, the premise, and you'll see why it has the warning. So. A street sweeper who cleans up after grisly accidents brings home a full corpse for him and his wife to enjoy sexually, but is dismayed to see that his wife prefers the corpse over him. This is from 1988. It's directed by Jorg Boot Garrett. Uh, It's 71 minutes, and uh, when you watch it, it feels like it's 71 days. Um, I'd seen Necromantic before. I was really surprised that they were showing it on here again. Or not again, but for the first time. Um, this is a movie that in 1988, uh, created some waves in the horror world and it, it makes sense, you know, considering what it is. Um, now, however, it's, I mean, it's a German movie. It's pretty boring. Um, there's real animal death in this one where you see a cat and a rabbit get killed. Um, it's pretty lo-fi and artsy, like, there's a lot of stuff in this movie that reminds me of something that you would have seen in the late 80s and early 90s in a music video, for example. Um, there's not much of a story here. Uh, considering how grisly of a movie it is, it is funny. Like, some of the stuff is funny. Like, it has an odd sense of humor. Um, but the bottom line for me in this one, man, it's 71 minutes, and it feels like a fucking eternity. Um, that was always my problem with Necromantic. Um you know, I, there is some artistic merit here, but it's just not really for me. It's just that simple. Well, and that's the problem, too. Like, movies like this, the ones that get kind of put over to, like, the next level are ones that have really good psychology and character development. And, like, the characters, you can care less about them. They don't really go deep into them at all. They're just kind of like puppets, you know, just for, like, the shock value of, you know, the scenes with the, the corpse and everything. Uh, like you said, dude, there's just like a lot of awkward moments that had me like giggling and things like that. Like, like you mentioned the weird kind of sense of humor it has here and there, but yeah, other than that, dude, it just trugs along and, and it's, it's fucking gross. Like, you know I me, mean? I, I say I could handle shit and, and stuff like that, but I mean, you know, who wants to see people boning, you know, having a threesome with a corpse? Yeah. I mean, it's, it is a grotesque ass movie. Like it, it's really gross. Uh, people bathing in fucking, you know, cat guts and shit like that. Like, it's just a weird fucking movie. Yeah, I couldn't, I didn't watch the the animal scenes. I turned away like I was seven. Yeah, I, I'd seen them before. I don't ever need to see them again. It's not. I mean, like, Joe Bob did I, say it was from a, do- it was footage from a documentary about a dude yeah. that does that, like in Germany, yeah. for what it's worth. But yeah, still, it's, I just don't it's just, that. it's, ex- 
It's exploitive footage. I get why they put it in there. It's just not something I care to sit through. I agree. Um, I get it. It's I've seen that type of thing before. I don't really need to see it again. Um, and, you know, I get the point of showing it on here, too, because it is a type of movie that, you know, for a lot of fans, if they never come across something like this, it, it should be, you know, like everybody should kind of see it once kind of a thing. Um, and I know there's people that are absolute massive fans of this movie. Why? I don't know. But, you know, but they I'm are. not here to shit on anybody who's prayed. You know what I'm this saying? is yet so. another one that I hadn't seen. This was a first watch, but I, I do remember from the cover in the video stores and stuff and being interested. Yeah, I just never got to it. I just don't think this one, like this one doesn't, it, uh, I'm trying to think of the right way to explain this. <laughs> I'm not trying to say it's entertainment necessarily, but like. I just think that a movie like Cannibal Holocaust is significantly better in almost everything than this movie. And, and they both kind of share that thing of real animal death in it. Even though, you know, they didn't really kill the animals in this movie. It was more of the, the extra footage and stuff uh, added in, which has been done in other things as well, too. I don't really know where real animal death became such a selling point with foreign films. But there are things that happen in those movies that are just... You know, and it's a big reason why people still talk about them, too. So, I mean, I guess it's the, the good and the bad side. Of it. Yeah, it's kind of I think it's just, you know, obviously the, sh the shock factor. Yeah, I would think so. But uh, not so much shocking, more just boring for me, frankly. But, uh, you know, as far as Joe Bob and everybody went, you know, it was a pretty good time overall. Uh, it wasn't the greatest special that they've ever done. Um, but I wasn't complaining. I was happy to get it. I was probably more disappointed in the choices of movies this time around. I would be able to deal with this more thoroughly like during the season where I know I have a different one coming up next week. So I know that not all the movies are for me, but whenever they do a special like this, I'm kind of like, well, that was a bummer. Yeah, we won't get anything but, uh, for a while. Dude, I, I, it, I have to point out, because we, we kind of talked about it briefly, the one scene, they basically cut this pipe, like piping, and yep. they insert it into the corpse and the wife puts a condom on it and that's how she gets off on the corpse and then you have the husband like sucking on the eyeball. Yeah. Pretty. Brutal. I mean, it's, there's a lot. Yeah. There's some really gross shit in this one for sure. Uh, and it's not, you know, like it doesn't feel real. Like it's, yeah, not that's, like that. that's why exactly. That's why I could get, through but it's it. still gross. Nonetheless, <laughs> yeah, but, uh, but yes, this one, uh, you know, it kind of is what it is. There's not a whole lot to break down in it. Just other than that. So like, if, if you want to push your extreme limits, then maybe you want to give Necromantic a shot. But uh, but what is a... Uh, this one has some good ones, so give us a tagline for Necromantic, would you? All right, I have the one, a film about love for man and what remains of him. And another one, death is just the beginning. So uh, Necromantic on the five-star rating scale. The Jay, what do you got for this one? I give it two. I give it two and a half, uh, but that's just because of... More of what it is as opposed to the movie itself. So uh, kind of a disappointing uh, special, I think, from at least from my perspective. Yeah, because even yeah, even the uh, the segments and interludes weren't the greatest uh, this time around. Uh, the wedding thing, I could have cared less about. It was kind of awkward because the people getting married had won an auction that they had done on the Christmas special of the last drive-in, and they actually had the couple in segments as well. And they're not a actors. Nope. So it was really and weird. Frankly, and, you know, I understand why they did it. And everything. Yeah. I mean, it's not like it was a big money. deal, but it just was, it just but, wasn't that great. Well, and we watched this for the movie related stuff and that just, yeah, good point. From, yeah, exactly. From that kind of shit. So, 
you know, that's not really why we tune in in the first place. But that's okay. Happy to have the special anyways, even if it wasn't the best. But uh, whenever they have a special or whenever the season is in play, that's when you know we're covering them here on the show. So we are up against our very last commercial break. And whenever we come back, we're going to wrap up the show and talk some goofs with the Jay. So hold tight, everybody. We'll be back right after this right here on the What's Real Podcast. This is Ed from the What's Real Podcast for Physically Fit with Kurt Angle. At Physically Fit, we are committed to providing our customers with the highest quality, better-for-you protein snack nutrition the entire family will enjoy. In a time when product quality seems to be compromised by price, we are determined to be unique and offer different offerings, superior ingredients, great taste, texture, and quality in every bag. We strive to inspire everyone on some level and share values of faith, family, respect, and excellence daily. Our goal is to be a small part of your life, personal growth, health, and happiness. We consider each customer to be part of our growing physically fit family and encourage all to live life to its fullest. Set new goals daily to better yourself physically, financially, emotionally, and spiritually. Don't compromise your values and always be kind and respectful to others. Our motto is healthy people, healthy planet, because we believe that providing great tasting nutrition makes for a healthier you, and a healthier you makes for a healthier planet. Strive for a better tomorrow and live physically fit. Go to physicallyfit.com today. Hey everybody, this is Herman James for the What's Real Podcast, and I'm here to just let you know to welcome you to Goofs or Goofs. And we're back, and it's that time once again. So, the Jay, what do we got this week on the goof front? Ah, uh, take it in. Hey, Ed, it's so different here at the Lagoon, Vista, and Waterfall by the What's Real Studios. We have the Penguin Farm completely cleaned out, so no more of our little buddies, uh, which kind of works out, man. We're halfway through February, just like that. Hey, yeah. So, hopefully, this winter continues to go pretty fast. We, we mentioned this was a pretty quick winter, all things considered, knock on wood, because we still got a ways to go, but. Uh, you know, things are getting cleaned up around here, and it's back to the beautiful lagoon. I'm telling you, man, before you know it, we're going to be able to enjoy this shit again. Yeah, I can't wait, man. But welcome, everybody, to episode 151's Goofs are Goofs. Uh, first and foremost, hey, Ed, I told you I was going to send you this this live on the show because I want to get your reaction um, as you watch it live. So I'm texting you the viral video of the week. Uh, but for those listening, I'll put it on um, as we watch it with Hey Ed. So basically, this is a footage of roller derby from the 70s. And oh, I don't yeah. know what the rules are, but this dude's like looking like he's going to lose. He flips a okay. dude over on his head. Yep. Drop kicks a dude. Oh! Almost breaks the dude's ribs, keeps going, gets flung forward to basically like where he's going to make this comeback to win. And then he closed, he does like a, a diving, like cross body to, to win the game. Yeah. Unbelievable. It's, uh, I don't know if you know this or not. You know that stuff's a work, right? Yes. Okay. But, but still I wasn't unreal. sure if you knew that. So yeah. For, yeah. For those listening. Dude, that used to be. That shit used to be super popular too, like really popular. Yeah, yeah, roller derby highlights, but that that was a good one, man. Just because that dude was just murdering mugs. The the double knees to the chest is the one that got. Me. Yeah, and the dude, you know, I, I don't know if he was selling or that was one of those cases. Oh, he was selling. just like pro wrestling, where his ribs were splattered. Probably a little of both. Actually. <laughs> yeah, like, don't worry, Ron. You just got bruised ribs. Just give it a month and a half. 
Now here's your $30 in a hot dog. So, so a big uh, topic on Goose or Goose and the What's Real podcast is the impending release of the huge Elizabeth Banks vehicle. Uh, Elizabeth Banks as director, Cocaine the, Bear. The co- Cocaine Bear. And it, it, we've all heard of Cocaine Bear, but this is brought up. What about Cocaine Shark? Hey, Ed, you knew this was coming, That's, but this is stemming off the of... The sci-fi channel's making this, I believe. Well, this is off of a real story. Uh, New Zealand police have recovered 3.5 tons of cocaine worth $316 million from the Pacific Ocean in the country's lar- largest drug seizure ever. Yeah, I mean, that's uh, that's where the coke goes, over the fucking... over the oceans. Yeah, but can you imagine a, a great white shark on cocaine? Nah, I mean, it's like anything else at this point. Why not, right? We're gonna we're gonna actually learn about the uh, the cocaine bear soon because we're getting some edibles and going to see that on opening night at the here at the What's Up yeah. podcast. Yeah, I definitely want to see that shit. Um, I don't know if you heard about these. Hey, Eel, this was from uh, Barstool. They're they're called Blackout Rage Gallons, aka Borgs. No, they're the new craze at college parties now, and adults are extremely scared. Okay. So the Borg or Blackout Rage Gallon has become the drink of choice on college campuses across the country. Now, here it is. Hey, Ed, if you want to try this as an experiment this week and we can report it next week, uh, if you want to come over this weekend, we could each drink a Borg. Uh, they're, okay. they're made with half water, half vodka, a caffeinated flavor enhancer, and a dash of powdered oh, electrolytes. Oh, I hate this so much. It's a it's certified on TikTok as a hangover proof party staple. Yeah, you can. I'd rather have a hangover than drink that horseshit. Yeah, when making Borgs, drinkers get "quote unquote" complete control over what they're drinking and can pace themselves appropriately. She described Borgs as really solid harm reduction when paired with other tactics. However, it seems to be backfiring because that, that's what they like. That, that's what's funny. It's like it's called Blackout Rage Gallon, and they're like, "Yeah, it's the healthy way to drink." Yeah, that doesn't make any sense at all. I assume this is going to be like fucking like mescaline mixed with fucking jungle juice mixed with fucking some weird venom from a frog. Like that kind of shit. But no, it's just water and sports drink with vodka. Yeah, like a TikTok commentator said, after COVID and the pandemic, the whole communal drink thing kind of went out the window. Borgs came out of necessity. And your boy, the J, was like, what? Yeah, because I'm sure most people that are going to go get blackout drunk at a frat party are fucking worried about germs. I mean, you know, it is. We we bash Generation Zers a lot uh, and for good reason. But, you know, uh, the the invention of the Borg, it's just going to continue that yeah. trend, Had I mean, we kind of invented this when we were in high school. The only difference is we just poured vodka in a fucking Gatorade bottle with Gatorade. Yeah, it's called just jungle juice in our day. Yeah. Yeah, or just vodka and Gatorade, but you know. I remember I, I learned sorry. I learned that party trick freshman year because that's when like they used to charge for you know you get charged <laughs> like five bucks for your red cup to drink from the keg. It's, it's like no, I'm good. I got a Gatorade. Yeah, like I had I had no cash on me, and there was a thing of jungle juice with like the fruit in it. And my one buddy is like, dude, just steal it. Just eat the fruit. You'll be done. And I was fucking mm-hmm. destroyed because it's so been there, done alcohol. that. Yeah. Yep. You know, it goes on to say kids in America have been getting blacked out for eternity and they'll continue to as long as we have these archaic 21 and over drinking lodge, which promote it to quote Dan Patrick. You can't stop it. You can only hope to contain it. 
<laughs> that's um, definitely the case of us when we were younger for sure yeah this this even some weekends now. exactly <laughs> still can happen uh this one was funny the angry mom who identifies as a cat at a school board meeting did you see that no yeah she's pretty brutal uh this woman for whatever reason identifies as a cat and she was upset at the school board so she went you know, as her cat character. Mm-hmm. And she looks like Catwoman, of course. Mm-hmm. And nobody listened to her. Good. <laughs> she, Thank fuck. She's not woke. Hey, Eel. No, she just shouldn't be listened to in any capacity. Yeah, this this was a funny one. Uh, you know, the Mars Chocolate Factory in, in R- yep. Wrigley. Uh, yep. Two workers fell into a vat of chocolate last week. And sued them. And uh, no, Mars Wrigley fined them. Oh, that's right. Yeah. Like, <laughs> like four, it was like 14 grand. Yeah, 14 five. Like, I'm like, how much are these fucking people making? <laughs> yeah. Uh, it was a June accident at the Elizabethtown M&M's Mars factory. Uh, well, here's the thing. This was the reason of the fine. Uh, they said the workers were not authorized to work in the tanks and weren't trained on the proper safety procedures for the equipment. Okay, so I'm sure a good way to keep them fucking trained and happy is finding them fourteen thousand dollars. Yeah, I mean, they said that the two workers employed by an outside contracting firm fell into the uh, partially filled chocolate tank while doing maintenance work. Did <laughs> <laughs> you just see like a dude like turning a screw like, yeah. it's like oh, no, and fell in the chocolate? Yeah. Like, Help me. It's like Willy Wonka yeah. and shit. Emergency responders were able to free the pair by cutting a hole in the bottom of the tank, and they were taken to hospitals by helicopter. The fuck? Like, he's he's induced chocolate into his lungs. <laughs> yeah. What the fuck? You know what we say? What an idiot. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, that wasn't the greatest one. Hey, Ed, but your boy, the J tries, but we're tired. We're in the witching hour here on the What's Real oh, podcast. And as I say to my brohama from many other mamas, between cocaine sharks, blackout rage drinks, cat moms, roller derbies, and chocolate falls, goofs are goofs. So if you guys are listening on iTunes, feel free to give us a five-star review. It helps out the algorithm. and gets more eyes and ears on the program. Uh, of course, subscribe to us on all of your favorite podcasting platforms, such as Apple, iTunes, Spotify, Podbean, Google Podcasts. And you can listen each and every week on churchillpictures.com. If you have something you'd like to add to the show, you can do so through email at whatsrealpod at gmail.com. Again, that is whatsrealpod at gmail.com. But before we get out of here, here's the J revving it up. So the J, take it away. Revving it up like I'm having a triple threat ladder match for a charity between a cocaine shark and a cocaine bear. Hey, you know, that's how much I'm revving it up this week. But my usual shout outs, first and foremost, love the show to our great producer, the wizard behind the boards himself. Cam, you're the man. We appreciate you know what you do. That consistent, constant, weekly 16K sound. You're the man and you're the wizard. Hey, Ed, my brother, another fun adventure, man. Month of the Samurai was the shit. One more week on that. The journey of the NFL 22-23 season was awesome, man. Good shit there. Talking one of our favorite sports since we were kids. It's always a blast on the What's Real podcast. As I do, leading the charge like an old general on my horse, Luku. Stay safe. Stay healthy out there. You'll hear the J next week. 
So that's about it for us this week here on the show. Shout out to our producer, Cam, for all the hard work he puts in on the program. Because as we know here on the show, nobody beats the whiz. The J. Clang, clang, clang. Another successful defense of the Tag Team Podcast Championships of the Universe. Still undefeated and still rolling along. So that is it for us this week here on episode 152. Don't forget to join us next week for episode 153 and beyond. So stay safe, stay healthy, and stay tuned to a little bit of De La Soul. We'll see you here next week on the What's Real Podcast. Am I just another lost in the pack? We call Shaq shit, you know, laugh it off. Years just blow by. My eyes stay fixed, but the picture's kinda out of focus. I cry a lot, but admit to it. Enjoying life now.